people often think that because children do not speak English, that they have challenges learning. And what I remind people is most of our children will be, will be bilingual by second grade, <laughs> which how many Americans, uh, I'll include myself, how many of us can truly say that? So because of that, we've also encouraged our teachers to become gifted certified because you have to be able to identify those beautiful learning nuances that you can see even if a child doesn't speak the language. Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that focuses on topics related to English language learners and how we can make a greater impact. Highest Aspirations is brought to you by Elevation Education, your partner for ELL program management and instruction. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. How many times have you heard the expression, take an asset-based approach to EL education? We've certainly used that term on many occasions here on Highest Aspirations. But what does it really mean? And what might we learn from school leaders working in Clarkston, Georgia, a community that has been called the most diverse square mile in America and the Ellis Island of the South? How does their radical approach to family and community engagement enhance outcomes for students in diverse communities? We discuss these questions and much more in our conversation with Assistant Principal Babatunji Ifarinu and Principal Stephanie Brown Bryant from Indian Creek Elementary School in Clarkston, Georgia, a highly diverse community just outside of Atlanta. For more information and full bios of our guests, check out the show notes on whatever platform you are using to listen to Highest Aspirations. As always, we are committed to keeping you informed and inspired with resources to help you support your English learners. If you'd like more information or you'd like to contribute to this series, you can go to elevationeducation.com slash ELL community. And remember that Elevation has two L's. You can also subscribe to Highest Aspirations wherever you listen to podcasts so you know when new episodes are released. As always, thanks for listening. Stay safe and take care of each other. Baba Tunji Ifarinu and Stephanie Brown Bryant, thank you so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. Oh, you're very welcome, and we are very happy to be here. And this is a very important topic, so we're I'm, I'm very happy to, that I was invited, and uh, thank you very much for having us. Thank you, Stephen. We really appreciate the offer, and we can't wait to let people know more about Indian Creek, our wonderful school. Let's do it. Let's get started. And you know, I should say that normally, I you know. I, I like to profile educators in schools, um, and we've done it before, but your particular community um, is is quite fascinating, and I learned about it a while back and actually interviewed some folks from the town. I'll get into that a little bit later, but I, I don't usually start interviews this way, but in this particular case, I do think it's important to set, set the stage a little bit. So give us an idea of what makes Clarkston, uh, Georgia so special. So I'll start. Uh, again, I'm Stephanie Brown Bryant, and I am the current principal at Indian Creek Elementary School. And in my four years of being an administrator here, um, I can, the best words to describe Indian Creek are joyful, magical, um, unique, diverse, and um, I guess life changing would be two words, but, and life changing. And uh, Clarkston, the Clarkston community is the most diverse mile in the United States. We have more than 40 languages and um, about 75% of our students come from refugee families. Um, we have, uh, I think I have 80%, about 70, a little about 70% students who are um, now labeled as 
ESOL students where English is their second language, but our float students is a bit higher. That means in their households, they speak another language. So, of course, imagine being either a brand new teacher or administrator and you walk into a classroom and you hear at least maybe eight different languages. <laughs> and many of our children, some of them uh, have not had any formal education and neither have their parents. So to consider um, having those beautiful babies walk into your school and they're like sponges and all they want to do is learn because many of them have had to come from very challenging situations to get to a place of, of hopes and dreams and aspirations for generations. Mm -hmm. So um, Clarkston uh, is a very dense community and our uh, parents and the community, it's a very tight knit community. So um, the best way to describe it is um, it looks like a little United Nations, I guess. And um, you see so much love. And even though um, we are 100% free and reduced, uh, it's a very a community of very impoverished children. We're, we have uh, so much love. And, and uh, I think these, our families are so uh, grateful that they give you their hearts and their souls when they, give, when they send their children to school. What a great description of a wonderful community. I, I had the pleasure of visiting one time because I had done um, a podcast episode actually on this podcast on Highest Aspirations mm. with the folks from Refuge Coffee who um, who were doing really great work with the refugee community. And and so I visited because I was at the TESOL conference in Atlanta and I said I had to go and visit those folks who I had chatted with. And I had just a little glimpse of it, but even sitting in mm. there and having a coffee and having some conversations, <laughs> you could definitely get the feel of what you were saying. Um, yeah. And I just love it how, you know, we talk about taking an asset-based approach to teaching all students, but particularly English learners all the time in the podcast. And you've just sort of encapsulated that um, in your description of the community. So thank you for that. And Tunji, we spoke a little bit a few weeks ago, it was right before Thanksgiving. And, um, you know, you told me that you learned very quickly that family and community engagement were crucial to the success of your students, really to every student, but in particular in your, in your context. And, you know, this this isn't going to come as a surprise to anyone, but there are elements that made it stand out even more in your situation. So I'd love it if you could just tell us a little bit um, more about uh, some of what you've called these radical approaches you've taken to connect with families. They're really uh, I thought they're really inspirational when we chatted last time. Of course. Um, so, you know, at, in this time, uh, community engagement and family engagement are buzzwords. And, um, you know, when people, when different uh, organizations talk about family engagement, sometimes they have a cookie cutter um, idea of what that means. You know, call families, you know, invite them, um, you know, have translators. But we learned very quickly that we had to uh, determine what family engagement meant to us and how can we um, intentionally de decide and, and, and um, engage our families so that we are effective. And so that our uh, families feel comfortable with coming to us. And one of the things that we do is we go out into our communities, we knock on doors, um, we, take a, we take a really um, radical approach to it because not many people and not many administrators take the time to go out into the community and knock on doors or you know, uh, visit families. And uh, whenever our, our children are having any issues uh, with attendance or um, issues getting on their, uh, like at this time, well, since we're virt virtual, getting on their, commu their computers. Um, you know, we had testing re recently 
And um, the process of taking the online test was very, uh, 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 I guess, kind of uh, involved. And so we, we had to uh, have students come up, but in addition, we had to go out to families' houses. And with our community, they are not used to seeing school leaders come, come into the, um, their homes. Right. And so for us to go to, go to homes is a big deal to our families. Um, and, you know, when we, when we go out into the neighborhoods, um, you, can see, you can hear the children say, oh, the principal, the principal, uh, because they're not, just not used to seeing that. And um, as a result of us being able to, well, being willing to go out into the community and knock on doors, um, our families feel comfortable, comfortable with coming to the school. Our families feel more comfortable with communicating with us. Uh, you know, they feel comfortable with um, letting us know what's going on with them um, so that we can, so we truly have built um, a family-centered uh, organization with our, uh, with our approach to family engagement. So as he spoke, another big piece of that is we've utilized a lot of our resources within the DeKalb County School District. So, for example, we have um, a partnership with the Parent and Family Engagement Department and the Title I Department, where every Monday and Tuesday when we were face-to-face, um, our parents were able to come in the building, in the building where their children learn, and they were able to learn, have classes, computer classes, uh, learn how to help their children at home. Also, um, they were they received classes to learn how to read. Um, and what was valuable about that is you, the, chi- the children were able to share with their parents in their environment how they learned. And with understanding of our, of our more than 900, well, we're at 850 now, but last year we were almost a thousand kids. Um, the kids finally get to share what they're doing every day and see the parents see the excitement. So it allows our parents to even feel more involved because they are a part of their children's learning. So we um, not only do we go out, but we have them come in as well. And um, we, I want to give a shout out to the EL studies department because um, we have the personal phone numbers and this is definitely not normal the personal phone numbers of all of the interpreters who are assigned to our school so uh, the love and care that they have um, for the communities in which they have they share the native languages of our children they don't mind helping uh, when we have children who need assistance they call sometimes they've had to go to the homes because they too establish a relationship with those families so it's really all hands on deck and no excuses at indian creek yeah that's great a couple of things i want to take out of uh both what you stephanie and Yutunji said just now because i think i think they're crucially important like my main takeaways here um there's a lot but two two big ones you know, the idea of, of making an investment to go out into the community and as you said, Junji, to knock on doors and how at the beginning that can be probably a little bit, well, certainly surprising, especially for these families who aren't used to a lot of, in a lot of situations, I know that the culture is such that school is school and home is home and those things don't intersect. So you, all, you have to put an investment in so that you get something out. And in this case, you know, it means that if you go there and establish some goodwill and build relationships and they're going to come into school which gets to what you were talking about, Stephanie, that idea of uh, providing learning opportunities for parents at the schools. But it goes beyond that because now you're able to to really make a connection between not only the parents and the school, but the parents, the school and the students. And that just brings everything full circle. But in order for you all to do that, it had to be, as Tony described it, that kind of radical approach to make it happen. 
And it strikes me too, that your approach to family engagement, and you said it's not cookie cutter, Tunji, it, it's, 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 uh, it's personalized. I mean, you've, you've, you've done what works for you. And I think that is, should be a key takeaway for a lot of other districts who maybe aren't dealing with, I'm not going to call them challenges because they're not, aren't dealing with a lot of the blessings that you all have, which is to have this amazing community, but they do have the diversity in a smaller scale. And so how could they go about sort of personalizing their experiences? I think that's a really interesting thing to consider. Right. And, and the thing about it is what people need to know is that when you go out of your way and you go beyond um, to reach out to these families, they, they um, take care of you. You know, you know, yep. you, you, if you go to the house and sometimes you can get you can uh, uh, get exposed to Nepali food or Burmese food. I mean, because they really, really enjoy and they really uh, take it seriously uh, that you took the time out of your, of your day to come to their home um, and to do what they know is best for their children. And, and, and we all have the best interests of our families and children in mind. And so they know that when we come to their homes and visit, they, they know exactly uh, what we're there for. And they uh, really love um, our, their experience with their children going to our school. Yeah. So not only an investment in the, in the educational uh, aspects of, you know, the, the, the student learning and the parent learning, but also an, an investment that uh, sometimes yields um, some important food culture knowledge, which is always, always comes back to the food. <laughs> it does. And we listen, we love it. <laughs> uh, I did. I was thinking to myself, how long is it going to take for us to talk about the diversity of cuisine that you probably have there? That's another podcast episode for another time. It is. It is. <laughs> We need to get our bookkeeper in on that one. She's uh, very familiar. <laughs> I love it. Um, okay. So, uh, you know, you, you, Stephanie, you began talking about um, how you're sort of taking advantage of the diversity of your community, um, you know, including having uh, interpreters who speak a wide variety of languages that are represented in your district. You know, I've, I've talked to folks about this kind of homegrown approach, and it's, it's something that's been researched quite a bit, both for interpreters and even for bringing in um, like EL teachers or ESOL teachers. Um, and it's had sort of varying degrees of success. How have you gone about making it work in, in your school? Because clearly, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but this seems like a, a big key to your success. It absolutely is. And um, so I'll start by saying, you know, as a teacher, I've been an educator for 25 years. Thank you. And yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> it's amazing. I, every now and then I go, should I do something else? And no, never. I can't. Um, but what I love about the experience in education is there are some really fundamental things that no matter which school you walk into, um, there should be consistency. So first you have to have a connection. You have to build your community. And we've done that uh, in several ways, of course, by creating those or establishing and maintaining great partnerships. We also have um, the Pan-Asian Society, um, CPACs, uh, which partners with our families and they support families and they give tutorial as well. And um, we have Catholic charities as well. And many of them, uh, many of the opportunities that we have um, in our schoolhouse, uh, we consider as like for instructional purposes, we have ESOL of course, our whole ESOL program. And this is going to sound pretty crazy, but we have, I think, 11. We've had up to 15 ESOL teachers, but right now we have 11 ESOL teachers. So if you imagine how many students they have to serve at once, it's 
really pretty phenomenal. Right. Um, but we encourage not that those are teachers who only serve in an ESOL capacity, but we have almost 80% of our teachers who are also ESOL certified. And in addition to that, one of the, um, I guess, uh, misnomers, I guess, um, that people often think that because children do not speak English, that they have challenges learning. And what I remind people is most of our children will be, will be bilingual by second grade, <laughs> right. which how many Americans, uh, I'll include myself, how many of us can truly say that? So because of that, we've also encouraged our teachers to become gifted certified because you have to be able to identify the um, those beautiful learning uh, nuances that that you can see even if a child doesn't speak the language. Uh, and because of that, um, you know, our teachers are a bit more, well, I'll say a lot more. Um, they, they see the things in our kids and they challenge them. You sometimes, uh, our former principal, uh, Dr. Campbell, used to call it the bless, bless your heart, that's bless that poor baby's heart syndrome, where yeah. people really just expect very little of our children because they don't speak English. And another thing we often hear is, oh, they can't speak English, so they can't do that. Right. I will promise you, if you walk in Indian Creek, we take all of the excuses away. So if there are materials they need, we make sure that um, we use our Title I funds because we really don't get um, an awful lot of funding outside of Title I and our general ed funds. Um, we've written grants for some of our children. Um, we have um, been very, very innovative uh, when it comes to the types of programs that we utilize, um, even our scheduling. Our scheduling has been uh, adjusted to maximize the time uh, in particular areas. We're available um, before school, <laughs> we have Saturday school. Um, our teachers, too, we have tutorial, of course, on I think at least twice a week, Tuesdays and Saturdays. Hasn't started this year, but normally um, it's twice a week. And we really equip our teachers with uh, professional learning that meets the children where they are. We have a strong intervention program so that children don't get lost in the cracks. And most of all, we love each other enough as a staff that we're able to lift each other up when we see those challenges coming. And when we see children that one teacher may not be able to assist with, they're all of ours. So we're a family and we have to make sure that we um, just take care of all of our children. If it's, if, for example, if a child is hungry, they can't learn. Or if they're about to be evicted, they surely can't pay attention. So we have programs in the neighborhood. Um, we rally together to help pay somebody's light bill or rent so that they don't uh, get evicted. Um, but we make sure that the child has everything. When they walk in this door, there are no excuses to learning. And when they see you care, they care. Right. And that has been the most beautiful part. So as far as um, diversifying our staff, um, we have brilliant people. Um, we worked very hard to make sure that um, we have more people who look like our children and who can, and who can relate. So we hired a, um, uh, our parent liaison uh, who speaks, I think, five languages. Right. And uh, she's, what is it, five 
Franklin. Yes, it's five. Uh-huh. And she represents the reason why she's most important in, in some of our um, personnel decisions is our Congolese population was the lowest performing population we had for years. And the reason why is because of um, the issues with genocide. Many of those families for generations have not had any formal education. So they didn't understand the purpose for, you know, why are we going to school? What's the big deal? So she's been able to, um, and her name is Micheline Salama. She's been able to create that personal um, connection and she's like a mama and she makes sure that the kids are here, that they're happy and healthy and that the parents understand the importance of that. We've of education and we've also have a brilliant um, bookkeeper who started as, I can't take credit for her hire, but she started as an interpreter for the district and um, she felt um, very, she was personally invested with the community because she likes to serve. Her name is Tin Leanne. And, um, she is, serves as our interpreter, even though she's our bookkeeper. Many of the parents, they, we can stand next to each other, but if our Burmese people see us, they look directly at her and begin speaking. And I understand that because we all um, gravitate towards people who look like us. Mm-hmm. So in understanding those cultural, the cultural competencies necessary to be successful, and I hope I'm going to let Tunji follow up on that because he is brilliant with discussing that. Um, we found that we have to understand what their expectations are as well. And you can't, you have to let go of your ego and pay attention to what our parents need. So we have given as much as we can within the building to make sure that um, instructionally and as well as culturally, we're prepared to receive our children. Right. And, um, and I just want to add that we also have a um, person working in our cafeteria uh, that is from one of the countries in the Horn of Africa, which is a big, um, uh, piece of the population that we have at our school uh, from Ethiopia and um, Eritrea, and she speaks um, both uh, Tekenya and she speaks Amharic, uh, which is two of the main languages in Ethiopia mm-hmm. and um, uh, Eritrea. Um, we also have someone, someone on our staff who speaks Spanish. Um, yeah, that's Miss Saba and Miss Ayrt. <laughs> right, and so so we just made sure that we um, have people who are actually from the cultures that we are serving. Uh, because that's a big part of um, serving our families. Uh, and one mm-hmm. example I'll give, um, so our Burmese families, sometimes when we are discussing very serious uh, topics, they might chuckle or they might, you know, they, they might laugh. Uh, and we were told by one of our um, Burmese um, staff members that that is a form of embarrassment. It's not that they didn't take what we were saying serious, but it's, you know, it's like an embarrassing laugh. And so we have to make sure that we're taking those cultures um, in, in mind when we're dealing with those families. Yeah, it's so important. I mean, it's, it goes way beyond just language and interpreting language. And I mean, you just rattled off a whole lot of names and I'm going to do my best just to, to give them some shout outs <laughs> as you did too. I mean, Micheline Salama, Tin Lian, Miss Saba and Miss Aird are the ones that I heard. And these yes. people have varying roles, you know, I mean, for somebody who's working in the cafeteria and other ones coordinating mm-hmm. like this is these are people that the students are seeing every day and they're key elements of the school community. And they're now mm-hmm. being elevated um, yes. and they're being it sounds like they're being uh, very well respected, uh, you know, publicly for what they're doing, which is which is crucially important. And I think that's great. Um, you know, and, and, and what, what you're talking about now 
you know, it sounds kind of like this sort of warm and fuzzy thing, and it's just great to have relationships. But we've seen over the last, since this pandemic started, the the importance of, of establishing relationships and building communities. You can't do anything else until that's done, particularly where we are now. And I should also mention that this is not just, uh, you know, sort of qualitative. I mean, there's, there's quantitative data here. Tunji, you and I were talking about how in the first year of your tenure, your school went from 61 uh, to 80.8% percent in the state grading system. I actually forget the name of that system, so you can remind me. Um, but these are, these are you know, this is hard data. Um, and I'm sure some of the strategies that you just talked about had to do with that. But I, I want to get into that a little bit more, because again, those are, those are hard numbers. Yeah. What were some of the key strategies that you all implemented besides what we've talked about that, that moved the needle so much? Great. So um, that scale is called, the state scale is called CCRPI. Thank you. And uh, <laughs> listen, it's a mouthful. And uh, data, true data analysis. You can't hide from the numbers. And the metrics of that formula are very diverse. And so it allows you to um, include or consider socioeconomic levels, how many EL students you have, um, your basic demographics of race and sex. And um, how many teachers you have, um, well, the, the levels of competency by grade level, as well as um, by subjects. So, um, and it also includes many of our standardized tests. So what we did is we were, we, intentionality is, uh, being intentional is a phrase at Indian Creek that we often use. Because we can't fly by night. All of our decisions have to be so directed because we don't have any time to waste. Our kids usually are already kind of behind the eight ball because even though they come in not speaking the language each year, they're expected to test um, in English, regardless of their, um, their level, their acquisition of language. So because of that, we have developed, um, and I'll shout out, uh, you know, my staff, uh, because we have lots of supports uh, in the building and we have what we call a, a date. We use data management, but we have a, like class sheets that identify which students are at risk and we're able to um, track them year through year so that if you have a child who isn't growing, you're more you're better able to identify. Is it because of language or is it because of some type of so us? Uh, need intellectual need that we have to address because generally some kids some teachers might just let them if they're quiet just let them sit there and hang out and right you know not really pay attention if they're learning or not so we started with our our basic numbers of reading and writing and i hope i'm going to let tunji follow up with swirling because he does most of our he does all of our professional learning uh for psyop in the building um as well as um for supporting our, our teachers on Swirl. And I'll let him talk about that. But we have, we, if they can't read, they really, it's difficult for them to do anything else. So we started with the basic reading element, made sure that our teachers were trained to teach in small groups, uh, as well as in um, individual coaching for kids. We made sure that we had opportunities um, with our writing teacher. We even hired a writing teacher uh, who comes in and works with groups because you can't ignore the expectations of the test and the exam. And we made sure the children felt good about being in school and about testing. So um, 
we have mentors uh, that check on the kids and make sure that they are, um, and our counseling staff does a great job of really supporting those kids who we know we're missing. So, you know, it's, I guess if there's a, it's not an umbrella, it's really a bubble that you kind of have to, you have to encapsulate our children in to make sure that we meet them, you know, everywhere they want to slide out and not be a part of the, of the community, they can't ignore it. So they just kind of give. <laughs> right. Yeah. That, I mean, you know, you mentioned that the, you can't hide from the data and the data is showing that you've, you know, there have been significant improvements, which is really amazing. And we've heard a lot of, uh, of the strategies that you've used that have, um, that have yielded those positive changes. And hopefully there are things that people are listening to that they can implement. Um, oh, I wanted a, to add one more thing. Critical, critical. Please. Thing. Yeah, go ahead. Um, we also adjusted our, for gifted. Um, we have a gifted teacher who not only uh, provides enrichment, and this is uh, one something that we really saw a great jump with our CCRPI. She provided, and, and not just her, but most a lot of our teachers provided um, enrichment activities for those students who were not being challenged. And you and I both know, we all know, that sometimes we teach to the middle. And we were losing, and the children were losing interest. And, you know, they weren't really putting forth the effort. And once we were able to provide them with programming and um, events to like robotics and um, we have a STEM team now, um, we've participated in the technology fair for the first time as a school last year, did very well. So now we're really seeing that interest kind of increase and the children want more. We're hoping to uh, attain STEM certification within the next few years. So those types of things as well have really pushed the kids to do more and, uh, and to achieve more. Right. Yeah, that is critical. I'm glad you added that. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about the diversity of, of your students, and I know that the high percentage, a very high percentage of your students, as you've already mentioned, are uh, English learners, some of them refugees, some of them newcomers, a lot of them. Um, but you have other students who are not English learners, but have their own challenges with literacy and mathematics, two areas that you've prioritized, as have many other districts and schools. How have you gone about making sure that all students um, have access to, to the academic language necessary to access the content they're learning? And I ask this question because, you know, we often hear that, um, that good instruction for English learners is good instruction for all students. And I can't think of a better example than yours to kind of mm -hmm. illustrate that point. Right. And so the first thing, like you said, we uh, prioritized our um, our goals. And so uh, language and mathematics was, you know, for us, um, you know, that's a big priority. Uh, and like you just said, you know, one thing that we had to uh, quickly understand is that uh, all students are language learners. And, you know, so we have to be very intentional about that. I tell people all the time that, you know, my father grew up in uh, Tifton, Georgia. My mother is from Thomason, Georgia. So my first language is country. And so even our students who are in our areas who are born in America, they still need language services. And so what we have done is we've created an environment where our teachers are intentional about making sure um, that students swirl every day. And that's, this is a term that came from one of my mentors, which is somebody you mentioned, um, Dr. Ayanna Cooper. Um, she created the acronym SWRL, SWIRL, for speaking, writing, reading, and listening. Uh, which are the four language domains. Um, so, and so what I did was I added in an I, um, and for for illustrate because sometimes our students need to illustrate concepts mm -hmm. in in a nonverbal way, 
And so what, what we've done is we've, uh, put, we've uh, kind of um, detailed what we need teachers to do. Uh, we need them to make sure they created meaningful opportunities for students to speak, write, read, and listen in class and illustrate concepts when they are unable to, um, to articulate in those other four language domains. Um, so all of our teachers have a uniform way of addressing um, SWIRL. They have it written in their classrooms and they have uh, language, uh, language objectives for each of those components because they, they tell us what they're going to do to get uh, students speaking in class, what they're going to do to get uh, students writing about content in class, uh, what they're going to do uh, to get students reading content and listening to content, but then interpreting, demonstrating that they were able to interpret that content. And what are they doing to give uh, students meaningful opportunities to illustrate concepts, uh, to demonstrate those concepts in a nonverbal or nonwritten uh, way. Um, we've also um, created um, you know, opportunities for students to use vocabulary in context. And uh, I say all the time to, uh, to teachers that you must use uh, vocabulary in context. Um, if, you, if, you, if your audience go out and Google linguistic constipation, you'll see an article um, on my name come up um, because what, what, I've, um, you know, what I've told teachers is that we wanna make sure that we do not create a, a situation where students have words memorized in their brains. They have uh, word walls uh, where they have uh, 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 definitions memorized, but when it's time to use those words in context, they just can't get it out. And so uh, that's what I call linguistic constipation. I love it. Um, and so what we do is we, everything that we do is centered around, um, you know, li um, literacy and mathematics. And so uh, what, what we also do is we make sure that teachers cover academic language so that when, those, when the student goes to a science class, they need to sound like a scientist. When they go to a, a language arts class or, or a liter literature class, they need to sound like a literary artist. Uh, when they go to their math, math class, they need to sound like a mathematician. And so we focus on um, using vocabulary in context. We focus on academic uh, language and we focus on using the components of um, sheltered instruction observation protocol, otherwise known as PSYOP, um, to make sure that we are making the content for our students comprehensible so that they can use that content and use that, those uh, standards in, in context. Um, we, we also make sure that we include culture in all this because we know that there's a, a, a cultural, a social cultural uh, process when it comes to learning. And so we make sure that we expose um, our students to concepts that they might not have um, been exposed to. One of the examples, one of the examples that come to mind is when I was in the classroom, um, I was uh, talking about the French and Indian War. And I was talking about the fact that the French came to what we now call Canada to trade fur with the Native American. But something told me, ask the class, what does the word fur mean? So eventually I got around to, uh, you know, doing what that voice told me to do. And I asked my class, what does the word fur mean? And no one in the class knew what the word fur was. Um, and so what I did was I went online, I found a picture of a person, of a rapper actually, wearing a fur coat. And I pointed to the fur coat and I asked them, well, what do you call this? And all, the, all of the students said they call it hair. Uh, they did not have a, a, a word in their language that distinguished human hair from animal fur. And so from then on, I had to make sure that I did not take anything for granted. And yeah. so I tell the teachers all the time, you can't take anything for granted. You know, another time I was talking about mowing the lawn. Well, in some of the countries, you don't mow the lawn because that's a, more of an American thing. And so we had to, um, you know, we had to instill in our teachers to consider the social cultural component of learning and to make sure that you're exposing students to some of the concepts that they would not necessarily be exposed to 
um, in their own uh, experience. And so um, the whole thing about building background is a part of the, um, the SIA um, components. Uh, building that background that they have not been exposed to, uh, making sure that you, you take a, a can-do attitude, you know, uh, like Bibi uh, uh, mentioned earlier, when we are talking about our students, we have to understand that not knowing English does not equate to not being able to learn. And so just having the attitude that our students can do whatever they need to do or whatever they want to do, we just have to give them the language uh, concept. And so taking that approach uh, of language, take, uh, uh, intentional, intentional approach to language, taking the approach to understanding that our students can learn, uh, taking the approach to making sure everything that you do is tied to standards, is tied to uh, language acquisition, is tied to our two priorities. And, and with those things being said, all uh, we were able to reach all of our students. And when you take that approach, you are able to differentiate, um, you know, those students um, that are in uh, the most need of language services. Then you have those students who are in, you know, uh, the middle, and then you can also operate um, so that you are reaching the students who are, um, you know, excelling and need more enrichment. You know, Tunji, everything you just said, I was listening intently, and I, I don't have any intent of sort of regurgitating what you said. Anybody can sort of rewind a little bit and listen, because I think there were some really nice nuggets in there. But what I will say is that there is nothing in what you said that is not beneficial for every student. Right. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it, it being, you know, you mentioned being able to talk like a scientist, if you're in science class, being, et cetera, you know, you really illustrated a lot of really important points that I asked in that, in that original question. And the only other thing I wanted to bring up was I did just Google linguistic constipation while you were speaking. And I did in fact, come up with an article, five aspects of language learning that right. you read. So I would, I would encourage everybody to do the same thing. I haven't been reading it because I've been listening to you, but it is indeed on there, October 8th, 2015. So that's a term that's been around for a while. I'm going to make sure that it gets out in the world a little bit more. Um, anyway, Stephanie, uh, go ahead. Quickly, because I know we could talk about our wonderful school forever. But um, one thing that also our students um, have been taught to discuss where they're how they're progressing. So we have data walls and the children are aware of where they where the goal is. So we talk about their goals and learning and they can tell, you know, if I read a few more books or if I learn my get more become learn my more in my tables or do better with this standard. Um, I could possibly grow, you know, a certain amount of points. So we have goals uh, for assessments, personal goals, reading goals, mathematics goals. And if you walk in our school, the expectation for our children is to be able to tell you with confidence, I may not be there yet, but I know what I need to do to get there. Yeah. And then, you know, we could get into the the metacognition piece there as well, but just that goal setting and understanding where they are is, is so crucial, especially, you know, we talk about <clears throat> the diverse learners that you all are, uh, are lucky enough to, to work with. Um, you know, you've talked, I, I was going to ask you a question about, uh, about not watering down concept, but I think you've talked a lot about that. Um, and Tunji just, you, you just brought some good pieces up. So I want to actually ask, um, a different question. Um, you know, obviously, where it's the it's the end of a what has been just a crazy year uh, in all realms, but maybe, maybe I don't think it's too uh, brash to say, especially in education. Um, it, so I'm I'm curious with everything that's going on, how how have you been able to distinguish between language barriers, social emotional issues, and other challenges? Um, 
And I ask you that question because of, of your context, because of the students that you're working with. And, and then once you've sort of figured out where this is coming from, you know, the challenges are coming from, how have you been able to, uh, to address them? I know it's oh, a big question, but. Right. Yeah, great. So one of the things um, that we found is very important in doing, being able to identify the difference is that uh, we have to be in tune with the different cultures that we're dealing with. Um, uh, recently, we had a, an, an advocate come up to our school. Um, we had a young, uh, a young um, student who was doing some things on the computer that he was not supposed to. And um, we went to the house to uh, take his computer so, so he can do uh, paperwork. And the mother in front of the student was taking up for the student and making excuses for him. Um, and keep in mind, this, this is a Congolese family and we have somebody on staff who is from the Congo uh, who speaks the five different languages, you know, many of the languages that are there in the Congo. And so this advocate comes up to the school and start making excuses, you know, maybe he didn't understand and, uh, you know, may, maybe this and maybe that. And so one of the things that we have to be able to do is discern, you know, if something is uh, going against the culture of this person, um, then we know that there is there are some other issues going on. And so with this particular family, the person that was from the Congo had to tell her, well, this is not normal. Normally, when a, when a school official shows up at a Congolese family's home, um, they make sure that they're, first of all, respectful. Second of all, they don't um, uh, basically say that what the, the school officials are saying is not true. And third of all, they definitely do not uh, speak against school officials in front of a child, uh, which would perpetuate the, the, the behavior that we were there for in the first place. And so making sure that we understand the cultures um, of our families is one of the things that we do. Uh, in addition to that, uh, we also take in consideration um, the situations that they've been through. Um, and, it, you know, we don't assume, but we let them tell us. And so we uh, allow our families to communicate with us, you know, uh, some of the things that they've been through. Uh, we also keep uh, in close contact with the refugee re uh, resettlement agencies. Um, you know, uh, BB mentioned earlier, we've de dealt with Catholic Charities and CPACs. Uh, in addition to that, we have also dealt with uh, the, I the uh, IRC. And um, we take advantage of the resources that they offer. And we also mm -hmm. refer families to them uh, from time to time. Um, in addition to that, you know, and I don't want to only deal with the, um, you know, one end. I want to also deal with the um, other end. BB uh, also mentioned that we make sure uh, that we, our teachers stay informed about how to identify uh, gifted students. Um, and so we want to make sure that we are covering the whole spectrum um, of students that have uh, other you know, needs. And so uh, we make sure, first of all, we review that we uh, cover uh, no, uh, understanding the culture. Um, we take a lot of data uh, that we, you know, we keep up with the work, we keep up with uh, family, we, the families, we keep up with uh, the, the contacts that we have with our families, and we make sure that we pay attention to the data uh, so that we can make informed decisions about, you know, whether it's uh, language or whether it's some other type of uh, issues going on with our students. Um, we also make sure that we include the families in that whole process. And so uh, we try to be very intentional about not assuming anything about our students, but paying attention to data, paying attention to culture, getting people involved who know the culture, and uh, making decisions um, with the whole team as opposed to individuals making decisions about our families. And I'd like to add um, the mental health piece has been something that we have um, really uh, been pushing and 
trying to create partnerships and find resources um, for because many of our families do come with um, from very challenging um, situations and many of them have PTSD. They've been separated from their families in their home country. And you have to understand that that does or may have a vital impact on their emotional stability and their right. mental health. So we've partnered with um, Ethne Health, uh, which is right up the street. And uh, they was a couple of doctors who moved to the area to help the refugee population. And because of those types of partnerships, we're able to identify when children and families are having some really uh, tough, they're having a tough time with the their current circumstances or their current situations. And we're able to send them directly to someone who we know and will not only understand the cultural competencies that are required, but can also have a link back to school and help the parent to feel supported. And we also work with um, faith-based organizations uh, because we do know that people seek um, oftentimes religion as a method of, for community and for their peace of mind and social health and emotional health as well. So uh, Decatur City Church is a strong um, uh, one of our faith-based organizations that they're really entrenched in our neighborhoods and help our parents a lot. And also Friends of Refugees offers a lot of other health services and supportive services for our families as well. Yeah. You know, it strikes me uh, two things is one, you know, you, 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 you started off talking about how you just need to know the cultures of the students. You, know, you need to have a, those competencies in place, which is not easy because you're serving a lot of different people, but you clearly have the resources in place to do that. The second takeaway I had from that is you talked about so many community partnerships. Um, and we've heard a lot about that as well. You know, we've done episodes specifically relating to utilizing the resources in your community and yours, of course, um, has a lot to, uh, uh, to offer. So, um, I appreciate that as well. Um, I want to zoom out a little and that we don't have, you know, in the, in the remaining time we have, um, and I just, I, I'm really interested in hearing, this is more aspirational, I guess. You've given us a lot of really good recommendations and data and, um, you know, strategies that you use, but I'd love to hear what your hopes and dreams are, um, for the students and the community you serve and, and what you hope, um, they'll be able to contribute to our society as a whole in this kind of really, I think, pivotal point uh, in our society? So I think every adult um, in our building, uh, especially those of us that are parents, the same dreams that we have for our, our personal children are the dreams that we have for our children at Indian Creek. And we treat them as such. So when I see a mother and a mother's pain or a mother's joy, I translate that to the classroom because I know that if the same seat that my child sits in at another school, I want those same opportunities for our children here at Indian Creek. And my, uh, we're building a brand new school, which is, I'm so excited, um, state of the art school, which will be That's opening, <laughs> I know, in August. And um, just, the, um, just knowing that the community feel of having... Um, when you say hopes and dreams, I want our children to know that they are the most important uh, people in our society. They are the ones who will break. Uh, they will not only change their community, but they will change the world because they come from all over the world. So people will be able to identify with them as leaders 
as innovators, as scientists, as creators. And we it starts right here. The foundations for curiosity and um, just risk taking to, to dream big and do more. Um, I see some politicians, those kids who like to argue could be very good uh, lawyers. Yeah, <laughs> the kids absolutely. who <laughs> the kids who like to pull apart the toys in class or break pencils could probably be engineers. <laughs> and, the, you know, you you find all of the gifts in every child. So um, I know that our children will be leaders. I know they will be confident and I know that their energy and their positive spirit will be one that you can that flame will light up the world. And so I'm. I'm so excited for the possibilities um, for our community and our schools. And the only thing I can um, add to that is um, one thing we t I talk about to the parents every single time we have a parent um, meeting is that I want them to maintain their culture and to um, uh, embrace their culture and embrace being multilingual um, because I want them to be able to read in their language and write in their language in addition to read and write in um, English. And so just maintaining a culture so they can become advocates and so they can become uh, empowered to strengthen their own um, communities so that we all can be strengthened. Because we know that if, if all of our individual uh, communities are strong, then we, all, we are all strong. And so, we, and, well, you know, whenever I speak to the parents, I instill that uh, thought in them that they need to maintain their culture, need to maintain their languages, uh, need to maintain uh, and pass down um, all of that uh, cultural information. Yeah, really great point. I'm glad you added that as well. I mean, uh, there's so much that these that these students and young people can contribute to our society, but also they need to hang on to what makes them uh, who they are. That identity piece is so yes, important. Yes. So um, I want I, I'd like to just ask if there's any way as we wrap up here that people can learn more about uh, the work that you're doing, either, you know, outside of Indian Creek or at the school. What's it, where's a place that people can go to learn more? I can, um, first of all, go to our uh, website. Um, you go to indiancreekes.decap.k12.ga.us. Uh, that'll take you to our website. Um, you know, I, I've have, I have a couple of um, publications or chapters that I've um, have in certain um, publications that are, that are coming out. Um, one of them is uh, Black Immigrants in the United States. Essays on the Politics of Race, Language, and Voice, uh, which is edited um, by Ayana Cooper and um, Awad Ibrahim. And um, my chapter is chapter seven. So you know, they can also reach out and get that book. Um, I also have a, um, there's also a book called Advocacy in English Language Teaching and Learning, edited by Heather Linville and James Whiting. Um, I think I'm in the last chapter in that book. Um, I wrote that book with, I mean, I wrote that chapter with Ayana and um, another uh, writer. And so they, they can see my work um, in those two publications. Um, and uh, like in addition to that, they can go to the email, like I said before. I mean, sorry, the, uh, the website. And we have been featured in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution um, three times uh, for our work, our community um, feel as well as our children's, um, their progress. And uh, of course, if you can Google um, Atlanta Journal Constitution and Indian Creek, um, those articles are very, they have a wealth of knowledge and give a beautiful, vivid description of Indian Creek Elementary School. 
Well, that's great. And I will get all of those links from you both. And we'll link to them on our show notes and the blog that will go with this episode so folks can find them as well. And we'll also include uh, a couple book recommendations of yours that we didn't get to um, during this episode. Um, but I, I just want to take the opportunity now to thank you so much. Oh, I want to say one other thing. Dr. Ayanna Cooper has been mentioned a few times, and I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, mention that she was the one who uh, put me in touch um, with with Tunji and also with, with Stephanie as well. And that's the reason why uh, this episode is happening. So if you're listening, uh, Dr. Cooper, thank you so much. Um, and we did an episode with her uh, uh, a few, actually about a year ago now. It's time to bring her back. That was really uh, good as well around social justice um, and the civil rights of English learners. She does amazing work. So we'll link to all those resources. And I just want to take this opportunity to thank you both, not only for taking an hour of your time to chat with us on Highest Aspirations, but for really all the great work that you're doing. It's exemplary. Um, you're lucky to work in the community that you work in. And I know you uh, you believe that, um, but you're, you're, or not but, and you're, you're really uh, doing a great job inspiring those of us who are working in, in, in more diverse communities as the years go on. So thank you so much. Thank you. And when you're in Clarkson, come by and see us. Yes. We're right around the corner from the, from the coffee shop. I yes. will. You know, and the bring great... some coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I will. Cause that will be one of my stops. I don't know when amazing. I'll be down there again, whenever this pandemic ends, hopefully, yeah. hopefully yeah. it'll happen, but I love meeting the folks that I get to interview, but it was so great chatting with you. Thanks again. Oh, Take care. Be thank safe. You. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.